Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde, author, writer, dog walker and podcaster. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, bookseller. Excellent. So we've got two guests this month. We've got Gethin Jones and Greg Moss. And I really liked it last month, actually. We had a chat. We've got Greg with us at the moment. And Greg, we had a chat between Catherine Evans, author, and Sue Wallman. So they're both young adult. And it worked very well, didn't it, to have the, the guest speaking as well? We can always hope. <laughs> but let's let's start as usual with what you've been reading, Susie. Okay, I'll kick off then. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, Act of Oblivion by Robert Harris first oh, because right. it was one of the ones that you recommended. I think when it came out in hardback, and I have to say it's not my natural home, um, partly because it's slightly picaresque. So because they're um, escaping from the justice in England it's always a slightly moving on they went there then they went there then they went there plus you've got um, being different pro- point of view protagonists both within London and of course in America that has to be but also between the two main protagonists and I found that profoundly confusing it took me ages to work out who was Will and who was Ned and who was the elder of the two very much as, since I've got Greg sitting here, who taught us on the MA that that is deeply confusing and you need all the time you're saying to the reader, bear with me, this this will bear fruit. And I actually don't think it ever did in the context of this book. I would have preferred one of them to have been the point of view protagonist. Blimey. Right. Goodness. OK. Because um, it didn't even occur to me that when I read it. Um, I think what interests me about the book, I think, is one is, on the one hand, it's a, it's a straightforward manhunt, but the other hand, it's a reflection by this older man on his life and on his part in the, in the Commonwealth and how uh, his relationship with, in particular, his relationship with Cromwell, but, but also on just what actually happened during, the, during that period of civil war. So I thought that, that was interesting. And also thought the other side is interesting as well. The, this, the 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 hunter of them, who is who's the only fictional character? Yes, Naylor. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and his 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 development as a character because I think I think that was interesting. As well. And I think that works. That's one of the ones where that other point of view protagonist worked. You had to be in his head, partly to understand why he's the hunter, and all of that is true. But that made. Ned, the more interesting of the two people, the two fugitives, um, they could have just... I mean, this is the problem with uh, trying to fictionalise a true story. Yeah. um, In that the most interesting person in this (laughs) true story is actually fictional. Uh, And the the two people at the centre of the story are actually not as interesting. So it it is is a challenge for... for for a writer. And I only pick at this because I think Robert Harris is a sublime writer. I've love his books and everything else you said about the book is absolutely true and I would recommend it to everybody but just for me I kept finding I kept reading and rereading that fr- first bit and then I it I twigged why the narrative, that was. Intri- the narrative intrigue's got to be as Tim's saying the fictional character though hasn't it mm. because like you go and see Oppenheimer there's not a lot of narrative energy there however well they make that movie because yeah. you know what happens right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I did know what happened, in fact, I, I, did, I did know, and I won't reveal what happened, because I happen to know that what happened to these two characters. But, um, but actually, you're right, it's, it's, it's the hunter that is the interesting part, is the interesting, interesting I don't know, the A bit. fictional bit. And I found the women interesting, so I was very happy to go in, into one of their sort of lives as and well. And s- 17th century is a really strong period for strong mm. female leads, you know, mm-hmm. with spies and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, a colleague of mine, Jack Jewers, has recently published a novel called The Secret Diary of Samuel Pepys, imagining what he got up to beyond the end of the diaries that we have. Because he has a bit part, doesn't he, in Act of Oblivion? Exactly, that was why I mentioned it. And, I mean, um, <laughs> so Jack has chosen the framework of Samuel Pepys and 
all the 17th century connections and then found a gap in history that he can exploit. Well, and I'm going to be slightly misling as well because I'm also going to talk about So Shall You Reap by Donna Leon. Right. Um, and the reason why I select that as well is that it's her 32nd, I think, 31st, maybe. Commissario Brunetti. The Commissario Brunetti. Yeah. Um, and I... I really look forward to them, like I used to look forward to Dick Francis. I'd get the new Dick Francis every Christmas as a present, and I'm a bit like this. And increasingly, I'm kind of a bit meh about them. Diminishing marginal returns. Very much is, is, so. is that you think it's changing, and you, you that's getting getting more aware of the subtleties of, of, of crime fiction, or do you think it's her that's got less interesting? I think it's because she's written so many. Um, right. I think it's become... Now it's almost writing by numbers. She knows what her audience so likes. So the plots so have got, got less, less convincing? There is no plot, really. Right. We all know who it's going to be right at the start. Okay. And there's a bit, oh, let's have Brunetti at home looking at his books. Now he's going to have... This I'll is tell refreshing, you what refreshingly lunch. astringent, um, <laughs> this, co- this commentary that you're providing here. But, but, <laughs> no, but it is. And, and for a long while, and if you love Venice and so on, you can get caught up with the artwork in this church or passing over that bridge. But all of a sudden you wake up at the end and you think, well... What was that all about, really? Plus, there's a little bit of political correct... Well, actually, there's quite a lot of political correctness. Uh, if you want to be pejorative, you could say wokeness in it. That doesn't further the plot. Actually, political correctness is, is not pejorative? <laughs> well, it's slightly less pejorative. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what to say without... I don't think there is a phrase that isn't a bit nasty, actually. Which is fine if it furthers the plot, but this actually doesn't um and so i checked on amazon because exactly that tim i thought well maybe it's just me and i looked and actually an awful lot of people are saying exactly what i've said and they love brunetti just Um, as a small aside i'd recommend reading neither the ruse of your own work on amazon nor other people's no, well, I don't read my own. I look at the number assiduously because we all know about the algorithms. Um, but I do, on this occasion, I did yesterday, never before I would buy a book. I, I mean, I was going to finish wondering. with and instead ask your local bookseller. Of course. Why are we here? Of course, Greg. Yeah, right. That, anyway, that's me. But I am going to say I'm going to have That's one, a cheerful start. One. No, but it's, uh, otherwise it's boring. It's just going, oh, I like yeah. that, and he's a friend. Okay. Um, but I am going to say The Conspirators by G.W. Shaw is the second of his not set on um, the marshes with um, Coopidy, his detective, so it isn't crime. Or Breen and Tozer, it's, the other, his um, other series. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is very much an oligarch again, um, and I loved it. Very what, was, what was the one with the boat? That was brilliant. That I was haven't Dick read this Rich. yet. Uh-huh. So this is like a... It isn't a follow-up mm-hmm. The to super Rich, yacht, but it's, I should That's say. the super yeah. yacht. Mm-hmm. This is the super mansion, the villa. Mm. Right. I look forward to reading that. I think I do think he's a, he's a really top writer. Of, he's so of, accomplished. Um, of sort of thrillers and crime, especially. So I look forward to that one. I enjoy I enjoyed De- Dead Rich. I thought that was terrific. So that's me. What have you been reading, Tim? Well, I've been reading quite a lot, seeing as it's summer. Uh, and um, I was going to start off with a book I mentioned last time, which is The Whalebone Theatre by Joanna Quinn. Um, this is basically about a sort of dysfunctional family living in a big country house in Dorset between the wars. And then the last third of the book is actually set um, during the Second World War. So these three half-siblings, each with a different set of parents, um, create a kind of world based on J.A. Henty novels. Um, you know, do you know, about, do you know J. what I mean by J.A. Henty novels? They're sort of peculiar... Um, novels of empire in the late 19th century. I haven't read them. No, I haven't read them either, but I've seen the, seen the beautiful jackets and those sort of, uh, books about daring do in in, uh, in some part of the empire. Yeah. Um, and a theatre, which they make out of whale bones, hence the, hence the title. Um, a whale was washed up on the, on the Dorset shore and they, and they make a theatre out of it. Anyway, so when the war comes, they each play a different role in it. Um, and, um, and all... It, it, it's a very, it's just a very engaging book. I it's really, great title. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it's, 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 it did very well in hardback. It's the first novel, and it did really well in hardback, and it's going to do very well in paperback, I'm sure, because it's just out. I've also been reading for we've got we've got um, some crime authors coming to the shop later on in the month, and I've been reading Simon Toyne's book, The Clearing, 
and Victoria Selman's book Truly, Darkly, Deeply. They're both, they're both uh, feature serial killers. Oh, so nice. Which is nice. But both approach it in very different ways. So, um, which makes for you know an interesting, interesting read. So Simon Toyne's book is set through the eyes of two two sort of runaway children, um, and uh, I say not I say children, young adults actually they are, and they're not they're not your only children. By the time this book happens, they're they're in their I don't know, late teens, early twenties, that sort of that sort of age. Um, and Simon Toyne's book is is it's very it's very gripping, very exciting, but it's that's that's it's 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 set up. Whereas Victoria Selman's book is told through the eyes of a of a middle-aged woman looking back on being the stepchild of a possible serial killer. We don't know whether he was or not. He's in prison, and she has had nothing to do with him for twenty years. And and she's. Do going, we know by the end? Or we do. Right. Okay. So you will find out. It's interesting in serial killer novels, isn't it? Because they're often. Um, quite referential to all the other serial killer novels or yeah. to true stories of serial killers aren't they do, do, do these reference yeah. that um they don't really know um so i don't think so i don't i'm not very up on my serial killer uh-huh. uh, um, stories so i i don't know <laughs> it's not really a genre that i've gone in for in in, in a lot in the past well, we've actually just been joined by Gethin, so do, do come and, um, and, and sit in, Gethin. We just thought we'd, we'd kick off with what we're currently reading. Am I late? Uh, Sorry. No, not at all. So we'll continue. We just thought we'd just... Because we were early, so yeah. we thought, we thought Why we'd start. Not? So. Why not? OK, um, fair enough. And so um, if you recognise the voice, you will, and we'll introduce Gethin properly. Well, actually, I'm going to ask <laughs> you to introduce yourselves... Um, because you'll know more. Now? But, no. You're, you're looking at no. me as if I should. No, but, no, okay. I'm, I'm warning you. Uh, I'm giving you time to think who you are. Oh, yeah. Um, but Gethin is a voice you'll recognise from BBC Radio Solent. Going back a while, yes. Quite a few years ago. Well, don't we all? Anyway, carrying on smoothly. Right. OK, so those, they, they, as I said, those approach the sort of serial killer novel from different angles, and, and they're interesting, both of them are interesting in their different ways. Um... Something completely different. I've just read the Summer Book by Turvey Janssen, which is uh, just out in a fiftieth, fiftieth, fiftieth anniversary edition. Um, I loved it, and it's uh, it is a, for those who don't know it. I mean, it's it's a bit of a classic. It's about a an old older woman and a and her granddaughter on this island in the Gulf of Finland, um, and it's a series of snapshots of one summer they spend there, um, and. It's very illuminating about about both growing up and about growing old, um, and rather, it's rather magical in its way. Uh, but it's a moomin-free environment. No moomins. Very okay. much so. No, absolutely not. It's very much an, an adult book, really. Um, no, it is an adult book, yeah, no, isn't it? Yeah. And, and but people who have read it years and years and years later just love it and, and return to it often. Indeed, they do. And lastly, Becky I am currently Swift. reading. Uh, Greg's book at the moment, Murder at Church. Oh, so, you are a love. So we, we, which I'm only a few, few chapters in. So, so that's my been my reading over so far of the summer. Excellent, thank you. So, what have we got to look out for this month, Tim? Well, it's, it's September, so it's coming up to be quite a big, big busy month actually. So, a lot of the big books come out then. Um, one I've picked up is is The Fraud by Zadie Smith, um, who who. Many people will remember from White Teeth back in, well, maybe 20 years ago now, I think it came out. Um, and it's always an event when she brings a new book out. This is set in Victorian England. Um, and the fraud is is the um, mistaken identity or, or whatever you call it. Um, I'm not sure we call it mistaken identity, but the, the person who, who claims to be the heir to a big fortune in the big scandal, core celebrity, being of the 19th century. Um, at the same time, we have Dickens. Charles Dickens is, is a is a character in this book, um, and it's about a writer who, of historical fiction, who starts off being very successful and gradually becomes less so. Uh, but it's a it's a, it's a good book. So that's the first book I wanted to mention. The second one is Absolutely and Forever by Rose Tremaine, another big author. This actually is a short novel, and it's the story of young love. Um, and it's 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 like all her work. It's all her books are tend to be different. But they're all beautifully structured and well written. Mm. Um, the Maverick by Thomas Harding. Now this is a this is a biography of the um, prolific and great 
publisher of the of late twentieth century England, uh, George Weidenfeld, um, Lord Weidenfeld, and it's it's uh, it's basically it's it's a big biography and it's told through the various key novels that, and books that he wrote, that he had published over the, that period of time in the second half. What? Of the so he century. marks out the life by the big yes, novels by that. The big, yeah, oh, big interesting. Books. So it's, it's, interesting it's a really approach. interesting structure. Is that Thomas Harding who we interviewed? In it is. Lockdown, right. Um, who who has written several books now, um, and uh, so yeah, we, he's an old, old friend of the program. Um, another book which is published is a book called From Hell with Love. Now this is uh, written by. So a local local person called Nigel Johnson Hill. It's and it's the, it's the story of his father during World War Two. Now, what's interesting about the book is that he was a prisoner of war in in Japan. Uh, sorry, sorry, not in Japan. In on the on the Burmese railway, um, and uh, he wrote a diary at the time. Wow! And he hid it in little bit pieces of bamboo and, and shoes and under rocks and all sorts of places. And uh, the diary itself is not. It's not. It's not a full of amazing, um, amazing stories. It's just unbelievably true. It's just so resonant with uh, sort of. I had three eggs for breakfast today. It's. It's kind of. It's very basic. And and at the same time, and so and so died today. You know. Um, it's. It's. It's written in the present tense. It actually as as it happened. Which is. I mean, we we're so used to the Bridge of the River Kwai mm. or. All these big stories of, uh, about the Burma Railway, but actually the mundane, mundanity of, of each day is what he, he brings across, and it's an extraordinary. It's also an amazing love letter to his wife, who he'd left behind, and his um, young son, who he'd left behind, and, and a baby that he'd never seen. Um, and is the author the baby or no, the young son? No, the author was born after the war. Ah, so, okay. Uh, but it's, it's an, it's, so he spends the first half of this, this diary having had no contact with his with his wife has no idea whether it's whether it's, she's even survived the, 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 the birth of, of his child. What did he um, use for ink? That's a good pencil. He'll get it in all pencil. Okay. Um, so anyway, it's it's a it, that's an, it's an extraordinary book actually, and that's coming out later in this this month. So that's the, that's the hardbacks I wanted to talk about. There's a few books that are coming out in paperback. Um, I just thought I'd mention those. Um, Bourneville which is by Jonathan Coe. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a family story. It's told episodically through a series of, of set pieces in the second half of the 20th century um, in key moments. So it starts with VE Day, it's got the coronation, um, the wedding of Charles and Diana. And it, it goes through and it see, this takes this family through through the tw- latter half of the 20th century, but all on these one days. That um, wasn't hugely... Um, greatly reviewed was it when it came out in hardback? Did you enjoy it? I did actually. I don't remember the reviews. Um, mm. Obviously, I never read reviews, so they're bad reviews. But I thought I thought it was. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's. Yeah, he's I loved terrific, Jonathan. That's why I noted it. You know, um, Exiles by Jane Harper. She did a book called The Dry, yeah. and she's an Australian um, writer of, of sort of crime thrillers. And this is about a, a, a woman who disappears at a music festival, and a year later. Um, festival happens again, and the um, sorry, it's a wine festival, not a music festival. And the uh, the policeman who was knew her, knew or knew the friends, tries to resolve what happened. And um, it's it's quite a detailed, quite a long um, thriller, I suppose, in which not an awful lot happens, but we slowly get the slow revelations of the plot as we as we go through it. Um, so I liked it. It's quite a slow pace, but I think it's a really good. Well structured. The dry was really as yeah. well, wasn't it? Yeah. Very resonant. Yeah. And an- another book called "We All Want Impossible Things." Um, now, this is a uh, it's a strange book. It's about two two very close friends. And at the very beginning of the book, we find out that one of these friends is dying in the last stages of, t- of terminal cancer. And it's a book about friendship, about family, about food, and about death. Um, but it's, it's written in in a very uh, witty style, um, and so it's a it's a strange book, and I think it's a really really interesting. So who wrote it, Tim? It's written by Catherine Newman, uh, no, and um, someone who I haven't come across before, and I think it may even be her first novel. I can't remember, but uh, but it really it's sort of really strange and interesting book. Sounds good. Well, that's brilliant. Um, so we're up to my extract, and. Um, I thought 
actually, my reading this month is going to be from Donna Leon. Um, and I know that sounds a bit weird, uh, but there is so much to still enjoy. So I know I was critical, but especially if you love Venice and so on, that I think it would be really good. So I'm just going to read a little bit from this, her latest book, So Shall They Reap. Fantastic. The sun had returned to Venice with them, so Brunetti decided to walk home and take what advantage he could of what was left of a now pleasant day. He was presented with multiple choices. All he had to do was decide which church he wanted to see. If he went over the Tolentini Bridge, he could pass the Frari, or he could veer right and pass San Pantalon, and then quickly home. He decided on the second, because he had recently been at the Frari for a funeral so grim and boring that even Tiziano's assumption had offered no consolation, no comfort. Instead, he'd had the distinct impression that the Virgin's ecstasy was the result of her joy at having been put in the Assumption fast lane. When and why had the liturgy become so tasteless and second-rate? The priests often showed no familiarity with the deceased. The family members who spoke to the congregation mouthed a list of clichés as though they'd not known the person either. And the music, ugly, ugly enough to have driven him from at least two churches. This, the city of Gabrielli, Vivaldi, Marcello, where the mourners now got a recorded guitar strumming some sort of contemporary sludge that failed to keep them awake, let alone inspire the congregation to throw off their mortal coil and sing the deceased to their eternal rest. The only emotion to which the music led the congregation, at least as far as Brunetti could judge in the rare times he attended a mass, was foot-shuffling embarrassment. He sometimes wondered if he was the only person who noticed the abyss between the overwhelming visual glory of the churches and their oral horror. At least with an ugly painting he could close his eyes. With ugly music it was not possible to close his ears. On impulse he cut left and walked to San Giacomo dell'Orio, where he'd not been for months. The interior was fortunate not to have any famous paintings, if one did not consider a scattering of palmered Il Giovanni's as famous, and thus presented a relaxing change from the churches with one or two masterpieces, the rest dismissed as products of his youth or attributed to. In those churches, Brunetti had often observed groups pausing in admiration of the good paintings, while the others, sometimes of equal or superior beauty, wasted their sweetness on the desert air. Inside, Brunetti walked slowly from one painting to the next, puzzled by the collective habit of the persons depicted in religious art of hurling themselves to the ground, and equally confused by the inordinately large number of muscular, naked arms they then raised to the heavens. When he emerged into the small campo in front of the church, Brunetti glanced at his watch and saw that it was almost four. Saturday had evaporated and he was left with only the husk of the day and the quickly dissolving light. He pulled his phone from his pocket and dialed Paola's number. When she answered, Brunetti said, I'm in Campo San Giacomo dell'Orio. Before he could say anything else, Paola asked casually, How has your day been? Calm, curious. No question about where he'd been all day. OK, we're going to do something a little bit differently this time. But let's ask our guests to introduce themselves and their work. So first of all, Gethin, tell us about you and about your, your book. OK, thank you very much. It's nice to be here in lovely Petersfield. Um, yes, my name is Gethin Jones. Uh, many years ago, I used to be on BBC Radio Solent uh, as a producer and, and a presenter. And I did that for about 25 years until, well, somebody came along and thought, I need a new team. So oh, it was bye-bye to broadcasting after 25 years. So I reinvented myself, I suppose, went into a completely different career. Um, after a little dabble in commercial radio and, and community television, um, I set myself up as a web designer. So that still earns me a crust and enables me to indulge in things like music and writing, which is what brings me here today. How appropriate. Well, yes. So, yes, I've, I've just recently published a book um, 
called Fatal Equation, which is a romantic drama. It's not going to get a Booker Prize, I'm fully aware of that, but it is an honest, feel-good romance that will hopefully, you know, bring warmth to people when they read it. And, and closely associated with the book is, uh, well, are a series of companion EPs, because the book is written about uh, Ali Kermi, who's a 35-year-old um, ambitious songwriter, producer, and also corporate DJ. And uh, so that's where the music comes in. He's a songwriter. There's a little link there with me as well. And anyway, he, at one of his corporate uh, gigs, he meets <coughs> an older woman. And at that moment, there is nuclear fusion. Excellent. The cosmos erupts. Um, they're two very, very different people. Um, he's a young Asian chap, and uh, she's an older woman. It's actually, her name is Laura O'Brien, and she's 52, and she comes from Tipperary in Ireland. And she's over in England to, to resettle after losing her husband very dramatically after a short four-year marriage. Uh, her husband, though, was a billionaire. He was Ireland's most famous uh, horse breeder. So Laura comes with much money and also much baggage. So the book is all about them meeting up, their unlikely backgrounds, their age gap relationship, obviously, and the seemingly absurd things that happened to them in the first year. I'll say no more. Say no more. What's its USP for me that I thought was astounding was the fact that, first of all, that there are songs that go with it and then I was really surprised that you'd also written the songs so it's yes. a very different skill set well I, yeah is it you see I mean inspiration and <coughs> creativity where does that come from I think it probably comes from the same place and it comes out in a different way depending on who and but what you, you are you must know more about music I mean I, I find music quite mathematical I can't I had to mime the recorder. <clears throat> very interesting you should say that, because our hero, the main protagonist, believes that as well, that it's very mathematical music, and it is. A fatal equation. Exactly, yes. Well, uh, where were we? <laughs> well, I think, I think we'll leave you there for a moment, Please Gethin, do. and let Greg introduce himself. Sure. Ge Gethin's music is fantastic, it by the way. It is. Uh, uh, I was <laughs> incredibly impressed by the range of it as in the range of styles and range of orchestrations. The catchiness of the melodies, there's some really fantastic hooks in there. Well, that was the idea, actually, yeah. And I love the accompanying music for a full-length novel. I think, have I ever seen that before? I yeah. don't think I have. I've read a lot of novels. No. Surely, yeah. I've okay. never I seen that before. I can't think of that. Yeah? Anyway, um, a fatal music by by Vikram Seth, but that was that was recordings of, of classic you know, yes. pieces, but it wasn't, it wasn't actually... It was pre-existing music. Yes, exactly. It wasn't created yeah. by the by the yes. author. You see, as so in as well, I'm here to talk about writing a novel. I'll get that get to that soon. Otherwise, no one will buy it. But I, I am also a, a writer of plays and musicals, and so wow, the okay. songwriting gene yes. is is something that I possess, and it's just a wonderfully encapsulated way of presenting an element of story. So that things at the end of the song are different from how they were at the beginning. And that's what it you want, isn't it? The song it is what speed, you want, doesn't it? We will have to talk more about that. So do you write, do you write the, the melodies as well, or do you just write the, do you write, I say just, do, do, do you write the book? I mean, do, do you write the... I write words and melodies, right. and I work with a composer who might change the melody. Yeah? But I always start off with melody, which usually I sing a cappella into my phone, say something like this, John. And then he will multi-instrument orchestrate this it. This is John Gleddle. It is, yeah. And then uh, sometimes we'll go to our pianist that we use a lot, Tony Pegler, who's a superb pianist um, from Debussy to jazz, I guess, would be his happiest domain. And um, he will also make suggestions. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's collaborative in that sense, but it tends to start with uh, Your my words and melody. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. OK. Sorry, carry on. No, carry no, on. not at all. So, you see, you were saying just now that you were reading a novel by Greg Moss called Murder at Church Lodge, and, of course, that warmed the cockles of my heart. I want always, when somebody tells me that, where have you got to, is what I want to say, but you can't really announce that because I it's can't. a murder it's, mystery. It's a murder mystery, but quite I early. I can say I read on, the whole, though. Last year, you were kind enough to send me a... I know, coffee. you've not blurted it out on the internet either. I have said Spilt nothing. the beans. No, I haven't. And the other interesting thing, I think, for the visitors to One Tree Books is that Tim also has some 
exclusive samplers of book two, Excellent. Murder at Bunting Manor, that come out comes out in November. Indeed. But yep. these samplers, they were printed for the Harrogate, the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, which happens each July in Harrogate. Do they, do they, they a big give event. you Old Peculiar to drink? Do, you're, God, you're, yes. Any yes. amount. Absolutely. Well, it's quite punchy stuff. Yeah, it? it's worth it. It's worth yeah. the drive to Harrogate <laughs> for a few things. Anyway, um, <laughs> there were a hundred of them printed and um, and put into goodie bags for you know attendees at the festival, and I just I just stole the spares. So Excellent. you've got them now. Excellent. So I described when I talked about it just vaguely, though mm-hmm. I described it as your first of a series of cozy crime novels. This is um, correct. With, uh, so Maisie Cooper yes. is the protagonist. Yes. Great name. Good. Um, so will you describe them as, as cozy crime? Yeah, Are completely. Right. Actually, if we turn back time, do you remember when we talked about The Coming Darkness, my yes. climate fiction yeah. novel set in 2037? It was the lady from Waitrose who rang me up and said to do an interview, Gethin, and said, do you mind if I call it Cli-Fi? And I said, you're the lady from Waitrose, I don't care what you call it. And, Sounds um, very dodgy. So Cli-Fi is climate fiction, right? Um, and in the same way, I don't mind people calling it cosy crime. It is a world in which... Once, Does not co-crime. No, I would hate that. Once the murder is elucidated, everything's fine. And that's the nature of cosy crime. The whole in what one do you of, mean by elucidating? Well, I mean in a William Shaw novel, uh, once the once the terrible rich person has been killed or brought to justice or whatever it might be, the world is still corrupt and unpleasant. Yeah. Whereas in a cosy crime novel, it's not. So the world by, is put to rights. by elucidating the mystery, everything's fine again. In in the same way, Gethin, in your romance, the brilliant idea of this age gap romance. I assume once they're happy, the job is done. Your job, your narrative job as a writer is done, oh, isn't it? You're right, absolutely on the button, yeah. 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 And that's how it should be. I think so, yes. That's and the right closure. Did the characters come to you fully formed or did they appear in the writing? Did I you had... assemble them like Mr Potato Head? <laughs> well, actually, I, I should explain that the, the songs came first. Oh, lovely. Oh, and, and an actor friend of mine uh, said, look... You're banging your head against a brick wall, releasing them as singles. Well, I knew that anyway, yeah. that they just go sh- yeah. just straight off the edge. Unless you've got a, a record company behind you with a big budget, forget it. So he said, what you need to do is uh, set your songs into some sort of context. Write a story. So our original idea was to do uh, a treatment for a TV drama because he's in acting and he's been in telly and he, he, that was the lofty idea anyway. I did think of that immediately. Yeah, actually, well, it's very much in not, mind. Right, good. But, did you, just yeah. carry on in just a moment, did you see a really good Channel 4 show called We Are Lady Parts, which is about a Muslim girl band, which is punctuated with the girl band songs? Well, I should do, shouldn't yeah, I? Yeah, have a look. For only five episodes, <laughs> yeah. really well made. Well received. Noted, mm-hmm. noted and will do, mm. yes. So anyway, um, we, we, uh, I got the idea of the treatment down on paper and I found that, of course, that everybody has, during COVID, had produced a t- TV drama treatment. Damn it. <laughs> so it's even harder than getting, getting no, a song really. away. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, well, go on, write the book. Write the book, for goodness sake, because it gives you even more armour, more strength and uh, more of a package, if you like, yes. to, the, to the whole concept. So that's why I set about the book and spent the 18 months on it. Um, but in fact, the, as far as the characters were concerned, they're about the only thing I did prepare before I launched into writing it blindly. I didn't swat up on how to write my first novel or anything like that, which I should have done. I, I went in and both feet first, but I did prepare the characters first. Obviously, I had to do that to an extent for the TV drama treatment. Sure. But then I developed them even more before I started writing the story. Yeah. And Greg, you're talking about your characters and how they, and how 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 do you come at it? What's, what's your so? 1972 in a village in southwest Sussex is the starting point for the first Maisie Cooper mystery. I was 11 years old. I lived in a village very much like the one in the novel. Right. My memories of being 11 are incredibly vivid, and they are. So we were very poor. They're comprised of an awareness of the difference between poverty and wealth and working on the land and owning the land, being a part of the church hierarchy, which was very important in Chichester, which also figures in the novel and the villages roundabout. Um, 
Yeah, so all all of that, all of that social and class distinction was very vivid. And um, although I haven't borrowed any characters that I knew in the village when I was 11, and it's not the exact same village, it's inspired by that. Right. And so, uh, well, it's interesting because um, I'm thinking of, of Richard Coles's book, which mm. is set in in sort of early 80s, I think it is, mm. somewhere I think there. it is, yeah. Um, and... It, he he lets you know when when that is because he litters the text liberally with bits and bits and bobs which te- which get you to but it's not until about halfway through the book that you're actually you've actually pinpointed exactly where it where it is because um, he doesn't say it out loud he just gives you clues no oh. don't, don't remember it maybe did I, and I didn't spot it but but it, there's lots of clues about about what's what's happening in culturally and what's happening sure. in the world. Uh, it's Margaret Thatcher, or it's whatever it might be—the minor strike, whatever you can you can sure. pinpoint the time. And I noticed that early on in your book, you talk about the, uh, the policeman driving a Ford Zephyr. Yes. Mm. And again, that immediately puts you in a little it spot does. if you if you know your cars. Yeah. Very Z cars. Uh, yes. We're exactly where where we are. So I remember Z cars when I was a, when I was a boy. And yeah. power cuts. Power cuts. Mm. Power cuts. Yeah. 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 So it's before, it, so the power cuts are already Three happening. It's just yeah. before the oil crisis of '73 and onwards. And yes, so. I mean one of the things though in this country is that little changed for quite a long time. We, change really speeded up when Richard and I went sailing. There weren't mobile phones. They were only just beginning to have internet cafes. And we had this huge Iridium phone. And I had to <laughs> to stand on the deck of our boat, Foxglove, trying and Richard would say, twizzle it to the right. you know, And he'd be down below desperately trying to get some sort of any message through anywhere. I, would, I did an event recently in uh, Topsham, which sailing reminded me, because Topsham is a big sailing port, um, the, I was reading from the very beginning of it and I mentioned the fact that in the larder there's a dehydrated ready meal. And I stopped reading and I looked around the room and I said, you know, a Vesta dehydrated <laughs> yeah. ready meal. <clears throat> and did people recognise Oh my that, God, yeah. yes. People love yeah. that. <laughs> they were dreadful. Oh, yes, I lived but if on you've Vesta got Paella. Else, I know. Yeah, no, I did. Every day I had a Vesta Paella. Did you? Actually, coming back to the characterization thing, Tim, the only person who's close to somebody I knew in the village is the uh, blacksmith, um, who is very, John. yeah, very, very much like the blacksmith in the village that I knew, who um, was a, a fixture outside of his forge. He had a pile of horseshoes. Have you ever seen that, Gethin? Outside the blacksmith's forge, there'll be a pile of rusting horseshoes that he's stacked up yeah. over many years. And I remember the summer when an American tourist bought it and took it home to Kentucky. Or what the hell? They do. Yeah. Took the pile of horseshoes home as a kind of monument. That must be uh-huh. really yeah. lucky. Uh, <laughs> they turn them up the other way in America, don't they? No, I didn't know that. They're, yeah, they do. The way up is important. Right. Yes, yeah. and, and in some European countries, yeah. don't yes. they have it differently? And them. that's a useless fact, isn't I'm it? I'm not um, sure it works either way, actually. I just, while we're on character, I wanted to ask Ethin. Yeah. Um, I was going to blacksmiths. So I was going to have a little blacksmith oh, anecdote. Have a, I remember in my on, village. Are we allowed to say blacksmith anymore? Blacksmith oh, was, I the think, blacksmith was I very much part think. of the, uh, you know, he was, he had a huge pile of waste metal. That was stretched seems to stretch forever, as far as I remember, as a small boy. But uh, and you know he was an absolute fixture of the of the of the village. Yes, and no. So that that trade, you you don't need many blacksmiths, do you? You need one blacksmith who will shoe the horses and fix the wheels and on the carts and all the rest of it. And that's, make bolts. I mean, yeah, stuff for home yep. as well. Yeah. But it brings me very neatly the question about mm-hmm. should one call them blacksmith to you, Gethin. Have you had any uh, pushback against having an older woman as a protagonist and a young Asian chap? Because you're neither of those things, you, uh, as far as I, I can know. see. I, that was purely my imagination, <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, very little research. I just went in with the idea. And I haven't had anything back. I've only had, thankfully, favourable comments. How so, wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah, so far, so good. But it's early days. <laughs> so I'm going to come, um, come in a book I'm going to talk about later is Zadie Smith's new book, The Fraud. Oh, yeah. Um, but amongst other things, it's about, it's about a writer that decides, a Victorian-era writer, a contemporary of Dickens, who decides that rather than writing... He gets his fingers burnt writing about a contemporary subject and decides to write historical fiction 
set hundreds of years before. Because How are his fingers burned? It because one of the, the characters that he that he writes about, I can't remember, I can't remember exactly how they burn, but they're basically he he steps on too many toes, mm-hmm. and he's he, he decides that he's going no longer going to write about contemporary stuff because it's just too. Leave that to Dickens. He's going to go back. It's just quite interesting, just a thought because yes, yeah. I think it, it, I'm sure it's always been it's been the case. Well, and we talked about Yellowface last time, didn't we? Which is essentially about cultural appropriation and so on. I mean, it's about a lot of stuff. But it, coming back to the Harrogate Festival, the ch- current chair Vasim Khan is he's a, a wonderful writer of a cosy crime set after Indian Partition. He happens to be the chair of the Crime Writers Association as well, and is a friend of mine. He's a lovely guy. He would argue that you can write what you damn well please, mm. respecting the subject that you've chosen. And only if you publish it yourself. Yes. <laughs> I, I did some yeah. research into, obviously, going the, the, the more conventional way of going through a publisher and literary agent. Um, but I, I looked at all their bios uh, online and the, the prerequisites of what they want you to include in the books and what they're currently reading... I'd never have written the book, you know. There were it was there were too many boxes to tick, so I had to just launch in and do it, and publish it myself. Mm-hmm. It because never... there are pylons on Twitter. I don't mean pylons, pile into on Twitter. And oh, I see um, what you, you mean see? by pile are, on. Yes, pile. Yeah, yeah. got it. Yeah. Um, and that you know that there's a friend of mine who tried to get something published initially. It's now hugely successful. But she would have had to have been an eight-year-old, selectively mute, uh, mixed-race child yes. to have had the authenticity to have written it. Yes. And, you know, we can all agree, you need... You know, I'm not a Viking from the age of the diaspora. Um, we need to use imagination. So Absolutely, the world. They're too literal. Also, with the three of us sitting here know Portsmouth very well, and mm. there is a huge Asian community. So I wondered if you had had their involvement at all. I'd um, like to tell you I researched it very thoroughly and did exactly that, but I didn't. I got the closest I got was our Indian restaurant. I'm afraid. Well, that's we fine. are very nice people. <laughs> very nice people indeed. But I haven't even told them; they'd be horrified. <laughs> I just, especially the beginning, I was thinking, yeah. I'm really interested in this idea about jumping two-footed into the writing of a novel because I've been helping people to write novels and plays and so on for 30 years, supporting other people's story development and so on. So I'm concerned not just with the breadth of their invention and so on, helping with that, but also with them not having to throw away screeds and screeds of text because they've attacked the story the wrong way round or... Because hmm. um, because there's bits of story that they should have told live, but they've got two people in a on a park bench telling one another about it. Do you know what I mean? And, it, it and it's sort of passive and redundant, and it all has to be reworked. Anyway, how what did you have to rework once you'd leapt in feet first? Oh, a huge amount. I mean, right. I actually, it was like songwriting uh, the way I did it. I don't know. Well, you have experience of writing music yourself i mean my method is sitting down with a guitar or in front of a piano keyboard um doodling with a few chords and the chords then somehow find themselves in some sort of progression uh, and then you start humming dreadfully over the top of it and then somehow that makes a little bit of sense and you somehow a tune appears you know somehow and I, I used the same approach uh, with writing the book. I, I knew what I wanted to cover in the chapter, roughly. Um, and I just literally sat there and said, go. You yeah, know? that's that's a, that's really good, though, to have a sense yes. that you're writing this unit, which is a chapter. Yeah. Or, or, or perhaps a scene. Yes. Because then you're writing purposefully towards what you know is an end point. I knew what I wanted to do for each chapter, but at the end of that chapter, if it raised something that was worth pursuing, I went off with it. But it must, right? Yeah. Every scene should end with a new narrative question. Every yes. chapter should end with a new narrative question. Yes. It's not just thrillers and crime books and so on that have to do this. I have to confess, I go did on. go back at various yeah, points later on and put those things in at the end of each chapter. Yeah. You must read more. But yes, I got there in the end, but it was uh, a clumsy process to so say like, the least. Like I said, I've been doing this for many years. When, yeah. I, when I write, I, get, I write about 50 or 60 pages. And then I review, I think about what's going to happen next. I, then I edit those 50 or 60 pages 
as a function of what I've decided happens next. Yep. And then I write the next 50 or 60 pages. Mm. And then I stop again and I think, okay, well, well, detail of what's going to happen next. Then I rewrite from the beginning again. So that doesn't mean I change every line, but I make everything consistent. Yes. So by the time I've got to the end, I have got quite a tidy script yep. because the beginning has been worked over four times. Yes. Whereas I would never... S- well, as you know, when I started, I would never finish anything if I did that. So I do this m- really massive first draft <laughs> with a sort of knowledge of what the story is. But until I've got the ending, I don't know how to start. Yeah, I know. What, yeah. Yeah. I know sense. what the ending is, though. So I you, know you, you're Guessing you must so have known what the ending was because it was a happy romantic ending, right? Well, I was persuaded to change it, but I can't really tell uh, you. That no. Because... Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> no. a good point. We gave it away. But did you? But did you know when you started writing what? You yes, intended? I did. I did. The only thing I really had to hone was the dialogue because right. I'm not experienced in that, and I kept reading it and reading it and rereading it. Did you read it, it aloud? Yes, to yes. myself. Yeah. And got it real, basically, um, because it, it originally it didn't sound great at all. So, yes, that was hard work. But uh, I got there in the end, I hope, anyway. Yes. OK, I have another question on this process yes. of writing, then. Yeah. Once you have a complete text and you're happy with it, mm. did you then ask a freelance editor no. to... Oh. <laughs> no, I didn't. And, and is that be- because you've, you felt that you'd done enough? No, I asked my wife. <laughs> well, that's she, she was a medical proofreader until recently so uh-huh. she's got the grammar yeah <laughs> and she's brutal with me so okay you know that was the yardstick really to to see whether she could tolerate it but i and i also sent it to a good friend of mine who i also work with in web design he's he's very good at proofreading from doing web design and uh, he's again brutal and he, he enjoyed the read as well. Yeah, so. that sounds like two really strong sets of opinions. Well, yeah. I so I didn't push it out too down many. down the line, though. I, I really appreciate having a creative editor mm. so that once I've done that initial first draft, then she will read that, a very trusted person, the only person who sees the first draft, um, and then will say, I think this is wonderful, the way you've got. And often it's things I haven't recognize it's like the the ancient yeah there's loads of things that you that are implicit in your early drafts that come to fruition in later drafts absolutely because we're all different and and the thing is you have to know how you work best now the trouble with that for me is that by the time i get those creative notes from my editor i've written another book no that's a good (laughs) thing isn't it (laughs) and then i've got this thing that i've got to switch mindset i'm currently editing um murder at Chichester Theatre which is the third in the series that will come out next March and at the same time as I'm here talking to you lovely people about murder at Church Lodge yeah so it gets, gets a bit it gets a bit uh, it gets a bit, bit confusing much. I think I can imagine a little but anyway, it's really interesting to hear some part of the creative process from the three of you all the different ways of, of doing it so thank you thank you for that but get it's a pleasure great respect for, for starting honestly as well. well yeah and I'm now busily recording the audio book Brilliant. Ah. Well done. <laughs> so what events have you got coming up? Well, just the, the books I was talking about earlier, the um, Victoria Simon, Simon, uh, Simon Toyne books. Um, William Shaw and those two authors are coming together to do a little sort of crime and where the, where the modern crime novel is going. Um, that'll be really interesting. That's on the 30th of August. Oh, wonderful. Um, so come, into, come to the bookshop and, and grab, a, grab a ticket for that. And we've got Claire Fuller coming to talk to our book club in September um, about uh, her, her work and to, dis- to discuss it with the book club. And especially The Memory of Animals? No. Oh, not that one. The, the paperback. Okay, okay. And But I'm devastated because I blithely said, yes, wonderful, let's do our interview while she's here. But Richard reminded me we're actually in Wales for that, so that would be a bit tricky for me to do. So if she's agreeable to be interviewed, it's going to be you interviewing her on your own. So is it unsettled ground that you'll be talking about? That's right, Susie. Excellent. Yes. Right, good. Well, we also we read that in our book group and that was rather wonderful so I'm a bit devastated I won't be here but you know there we go so that'll be on the 13th of September ah excellent so Gethin was asking how um 
people could hear the podcast. Would you like to remind everybody again? Well, it's available from all the usual places you get your podcasts from, on Spotify, uh, wherever, you, wherever you get them from. Excellent. Tim, that was lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susie. So we're going to do something a bit different again, and we're going to play out with Fatal Equation, played by Cool Star, written by Gethin Jones, and featuring singer Erin Newman. Hope you enjoy. When I first saw your smiling eyes, it was whoa, whoa, here we go. A flash of light so warm and bright, we chased the stars all through the night. But we couldn't figure it out. Where did all the passion go? Petersfield, let's build a band. A beat from Dragon Street and a snare from the square. A bass from Penn's Place, a gliss from Liss and a fill from Bell Hill. Ooh, some vocals from us locals and the Dave Gilmore of Tilmore. Only Petersfield's Shine Radio plays original music from local musicians. The Local Showcase with Mandy P is sponsored by Brickyard Studios. Petersfield's professional recording studio, rehearsal space and PA hire. The Local Showcase, Thursday nights at 9 and always online at shineradio.uk. 